0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, The Big Change Program and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a long and luscious life. Today's guest, Walter Longo, is my bet to become the first Nobel Prize winner who has appeared on the Plant Yourself Podcast. He's a longevity researcher at the University of Southern California whose broad vision and ability to focus on the details of scientific inquiry over a 30-year career so far may provide the data we need to extend the human lifespan by decades. And not through CRISPR or nanotechnology or Himalayan yak butter in our coffee, but through a really simple lifestyle and diet protocols readily available to many of us, like plant-based food and moderate physical activity. And fasting. Well, not fasting exactly, but a protocol that Longo and his team have developed that mimics the mind blowingly positive effects of fasting without the actual caloric deprivation. His book, The Longevity Diet, goes into the science and practical how to's of what he calls the fasting mimicking diet. And he graciously accepted an invitation to share his insights with me on this podcast. Before we get to it, a couple of notes for my whole food, plant based friends. First, Dr. Longo believes that some wild caught fish, you know, salmon, sardines, certain kinds, is a good addition to the diet. And he's quite fond of olive oil and in quantities that would make, you know, Caldwell Esselstyn gasp. And I ask about his views on these topics. We talk about him a little bit in the podcast and about the supporting evidence that he sees. And I allowed myself to be satisfied with his responses. You know, I'm not much of a debater. I I leave that to, uh, you know, Garth Davis and D. Colin Campbell, my co authors, both of whom have a much broader and deeper grasp of the science than I do. And of course, I'm so thrilled that Walter Longo appears on the podcast, one of the most respected researchers in the world of health and longevity. And I'm so thrilled that he's promoting a plant based diet plus a couple of servings of fish per week as the world's healthiest that I really want to focus on the good news rather than the areas where our recommendations diverge. That said, I don't agree that olive oil is a health food. It's a lot less bad than other saturated fats and oils, but its health benefits have been shown only in studies that replace those fats and oils with olive oil. So I don't believe we have clinical trials or population-based evidence that can tell us anything about consuming olive oil versus having no processed oils or saturated fats at all. And the lab data, such as uh, brachial challenges and the common sense model of caloric density and satiety, such as that promoted by Chef AJ, still compelled me to strongly discourage olive oil consumption among those humans wishing to live a long time. But who knows? Walter Longo's a smart guy. And it's also not entirely clear to me which of his recommendations are based on the objective science and which are also influenced by his perception of adoptability. Clearly, his fasting mimicking diet, which fully acknowledges the value of water-only fasting, is seen as preferable since most people will not willingly endure the discomfort of fasting or may be so medically compromised that they can't do it or they can't do it on their own. So the uh, fasting mimicking diet may not be superior to fasting, but you know the next best thing. And it's possible that adding fish and olive oil to a whole food plant-based diet may similarly be an accommodation in which the two least harmful products in their class, animal food and processed oil, respectively, are added to a diet Longo perceives as you know too restrictive to achieve mass adoption. And he may be right. Anyway, I thought long and hard about how to raise these issues in the conversation. I'm not convinced I did a great job, so I would love your feedback on that. Before we get to it, one quick item of business, which is the next um, big change slash well start cohort starts soon. Um, we're looking at a May fourteenth soft launch. That's uh, this coming Monday, and you know, giving you a week to sort of get on board and uh, get oriented, and then the uh, program itself starting the following Monday, May twenty first. So if you're interested, go to WellStartHealth.com slash program, read about it, and then at the bottom, there's a button to apply. All right, with all that, it's time to talk to Walter Longo. I'm so excited to share this with you. So without further ado, Dr. Walter Longo, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, so you wrote um, an amazing book that I've just Finished and uh, I'm reading for the second time the longevity diet um, I guess it came out in Italian first and now now in English
1: yes yes it's uh, been out in the US uh, uh, since uh, early January
0: now great um, so I guess I'd love to begin with with your story which is such such a, a beautiful and interesting story about you know the 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 luck of the luck of the draw where where you grew up and what brought you to the united states and, and led you to uh longevity research
1: yeah so um obviously i had no idea at the time but that uh, my parents a little town of a couple thousand people uh will end up being uh one of the uh the ones with the highest uh among the ones with the highest uh, prevalence uh, portion of centenarians in the world and um and then uh, my region where I grew up in, in Liguria, in the northwest of Italy, uh, turns out to be uh, Genova, my city, actually turns out to be the, the, the city in Europe with the highest, uh, over 65 population. Uh, now it's at 28.2%. And it um, and also turns out to be one of the few places around the world to uh, historically have a pescetarian diet. Uh, which um eventually science would uh, would suggest be uh, being the uh, probably the the healthiest one that you can adapt. so yes yeah, so an interesting uh interesting uh, origin uh when when it's um related to uh, longevity and, and nutrition
0: mm-hmm. and and you know there's lots of like you know studies of the different blue zones but most most of that information came from like post-World War II in the 1940s, and we know that people in Okinawa eat very differently now. So when you were growing up, I guess you and I are roughly the same age. I guess you were born in the sort of mid to late 60s. Yes. Um, right, so when you were growing up in the early 70s, uh, early 80s, were you, were you still eating a more or less traditional diet and, and living more or less a traditional lifestyle in terms of movement and community?
1: Yes, absolutely. So when we went south for, let's say, three months a year, we would very uh, frequently, maybe five times a week, have these uh, uh, green beans and beans and vegetables plus some pasta dish, which is uh, is in the book, and uh, it's called pasta in vallenea. And, uh, um, and in, in northern Italy, uh, where I spent the other nine months a year in Liguria, uh yeah we will have maybe fish uh, once a week and and uh you know probably have meat once a week uh and chicken once a week uh, that was probably the the typical um, the typical uh, uh week at the table um of course uh, there was probably times where we will have uh, meat or fish uh, uh more more days of the week um but um but certainly, it was very different than, than it is for, from now. Than it is
0: now, yeah. Right. And, and so you you came to America to study guitar, right?
1: Yes, I came to the U.S. Uh, to study um, jazz guitar. Although I was really training to be a a rock musician, so uh, that's what I wanted to do. But uh, jazz at the time was the the best thing you could study to uh, to train in in electric uh, guitar you know, performance. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, so I guess ultimately you're going to have to study Keith Richards to understand longevity, right?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I didn't study Keith Richards that much, um, but um, but certainly um, I was uh, very interested in uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, and Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, and um, you know. Um, the pink floyd the david gilmer so those were were the the guitar players that i was uh, uh trying to imitate and um and then of course uh uh you know, music school um of course is is it was interesting but uh i think it uh, played a tremendous role also in in the scientific uh, approach that i've always had um and uh, so i think uh, i would definitely recommend uh, music school uh to scientists i think it's uh it's a great way to start and start with, uh, the idea of uh, just think think differently and uh, think ahead and and try to do things that um that you haven't heard before and um and that that's uh, that's something that you get used to whether you do composition but also performance uh um, that is the the type of training you get.
0: Yeah, and you and you wrote, I thought, very beautifully that music um, kind of predisposed you when you started doing science to look for evidence that's quote in tune with evolution. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: Yes. So I mean that um, we're really the result of, of billions of years of evolution. And I think in most cases, uh, whether in medicine or in science, we forget those uh, 3 billion years. And we always try to um, come up with things that are really based on the last uh, 100 years. And uh, and that's a mistake. Uh, um, and that's a mistake because uh, eventually uh, you're going to do, in most cases, more bad than good. Um, why? Well, because you're not really understanding these three billion years and so for example if you block cholesterol synthesis you may think that uh, you're doing uh, you're doing something very good uh, but that's not really in tune with evolution right it's you're just blocking something the body is trying to make something and uh, and it doesn't do it by mistake uh, it, it may be fooled by a by a, a series of conditions but it's trying to make cholesterol and so uh, to fix the problem, you have to uh, figure out um, why is it trying to make, why is it making so much cholesterol, and uh, and what is it trying to do with it. And uh, so eventually, you can you can uh, really get rid of the the problem at its source. And uh, I think uh, the best way to do that is uh, to to do something that is in tune with evolution.
0: Right, because like what you're talking about really is seeing the body as something with its own intelligence, um, as opposed to, I think, the way most medical and scientific research has looked at the body, which is just to understand just what's going on at a smaller and smaller level, and then which lever can we push to manipulate it?
1: Yes, yeah, so this view um, of the body um, that is, uh, is not able to uh, handle a lot of its own problems is really prehistoric and um and it doesn't mean the body knows how to handle all of its problems Uh, of course uh, in in some cases uh, you need surgery in some cases you need drugs Um, and um, in some cases you need combination of drugs and the induction of self-repair but um, you always want to start with how does the body whether it's an autoimmunity or cancer Or is a neurodegenerative condition you always want to start with uh, or cardiovascular Uh, how how can the body uh, deal with this Um, it it, it must I always say if you cut yourself uh, so anything exterior that happens to you any wound is repaired to almost perfection uh, in the great majority of cases right and, and, uh, and it, I think it's naive to think that um, after three billion years, we evolved all these systems to fix the skin and everything on the outside, but we have not evolved anything to fix problems on the inside. Um, so it, it, it's obvious that we have. I mean, we've done many papers uh, showing that. And uh, so we need to start with that, exploit the, the body's ability uh, and push the body to fix itself. And sometimes it's going to need a hand. Um, and, uh, for example, chemotherapy plus fasting-mimicking diet and cancer treatment, uh, obviously it's working better than the, the than the fasting alone. It means that once the cancer is um, metastatic, it's advanced, uh, the body uh, may not be able to, or doesn't seem to be able to, to do anything anymore. And uh, so at that, at that point, then the drug becomes uh, very useful and, uh, and the combination seems to work best.
0: So when you talk about like programmed longevity and programmed aging, can you, can you explain what, what that means and what's, what's the, the meaning for sort of your, your way of thinking about aging and staying young versus some older ways?
1: Yeah, so I think that the community um, is really focused on, on the process of, of things uh, going progressively wrong and uh and that's what's called aging or senescence and um and i never liked this this idea you know this is why in the book i talk about juventology or juventology versus gerontology uh so the study of youth and, and um why is that a, a big difference because um if you look at a a, a mouse uh it, it it lives for two and a half years and for one and a half years is very healthy right so in um, people, we live for eighty years and we're very healthy for forty to fifty years. and so I'm very interested in the program that makes sure that for these fifty years in, in, a, in people or for one and a half years in, in the mouse makes everything almost perfect and rarely you develop any disease and, and so and that's what I call the, the program Longevity. What is the longevity program that keeps everything so perfect? And what happens to that program after? And can we keep it on for longer or much longer, so that you live to instead of 80, maybe you live to 100, uh, but uh, you live very healthy uh, to 100. And um, and of course, this was used to be science fiction, and now it's a reality. You know, we have. I'm about to go down to Ecuador in 10 days, and in Ecuador, uh, we we've shown already in these subjects that have the same. Mutation that make uh, mice have a record longevity shown and this is in the growth hormone receptor we've shown that they, um, they are uh, um, protected from cancer from diabetes and uh, and uh, from uh, age dependent cognitive decline and now we 're going down to look at their cardiovascular profile so yes. Yeah, so this idea of programme longevity um, is, uh, is now clearly um, Uh, can be showed or or is present in in both uh, mice and humans. And uh, now we have to find ways, and that's where the fasting and fasting-mimicking diet uh, come in. Um, We have to find ways to be able to do it without uh, necessarily pharmacological interventions, Uh, you know, eventually even pharmacological intervention, I assume. But um, I think for now uh, the the dietary interventions are best. And, and programmed aging instead is something much more, you know, for the for the specialists. I think it, it has to do with is it possible that we are actually programmed to die, um, and um, and you know Wallace and and uh, and Darwin uh, had both uh, um, uh, speculated that um, that this would be possible, that you know we. we the force of natural selection, so um, there is a force to uh, not only keep us healthy until we're 50, there is another force to kill us after that to get us out of the way. Now, that's much more controversial. I presented, we published several papers uh, 15 years ago uh, about this, at least in microorganisms, showing that um, some organisms are, in fact, uh, can be, in fact, programmed to die and get out of the way uh, to let the, the younger uh, thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, this is much, much uh, more difficult to uh, to study humans. And but uh, I just put it in the book because I thought it's interesting for people to think about that, and um, that's why I have it in there. But I, I really much more focused on the longevity program, uh, so on this youth uh, youthful or youthfulness program.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, reading it, it it struck me as both sort of very like plausible, I don't want to say obvious, but certainly plausible that there's a, a longevity program. And I was struck by the fact that I had never considered it before. And I think it's partly because the model I was using, my mental model was sort of like a car. Like, there, you know, we don't think if we buy a new car that it has some magical or intentional protection until it reaches 130,000 miles. But, but my experience of a car is that it works great until it all starts falling apart. And I kind of thought about the, the human body in the same way, that there was nothing there was nothing that the car was doing to protect itself in those early yeah. years.
1: Sure. And this is why in the book I talk about the car plus the body shop plus the mechanic, right? So the car itself doesn't have that. But the car uh, experience, if you want to call it, does, right? So... You have the dealership that tells you, bring it in. Um, you have uh, the mechanics that uh, can take care of um, uh, problems when they arise. So, yeah, there is a system to do the same, even for the car. It's just not intrinsic in the car itself, but uh, in the, what surrounds the car. So it, it makes sense as uh, the, uh, the body will have done all of that um, in, um, you know, by itself. And um, and as as the mechanic and the body shop all uh, inside, uh, so that um, they usually in most cases don't need to uh, don't need to take it anywhere. I mean, uh, of course, evolution um, has to take care of this because uh, uh, it cannot predict that we're going to have doctors and you know. And, and for most of our uh, evolution in in as is, is, uh, Homo sapiens, but also before us um there were no doctors and uh, so so the body had to take care of its own problems uh and that's why you want to have this um uh this longevity program to make sure that everything is is renewed and fixed um and uh, also to make sure that some of the damaged cells are uh, are eliminated
0: so you have a photograph in the book of a a young couple of childbearing age, and a, with a baby, and I t- I took that as kind of it's a, like a riddle, right? Th- like, like I had never thought of it before, that that basically the baby is a set of new, totally, you know, working cells from this couple that might be in their 30s or 40s. What what what's the significance of of of, of seeing? Having a baby in that way, and what 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 are the implications? Well, the, the
1: significance is really about um, showing that the body um, is able to distinguish uh, young from old, and select only young and select only nearly perfect. Uh, so that um, a uh, nearly perfect organism is is generated, um, so that the significance is really about um, the the body ability to reset everything to zero. Uh, now it doesn't do it for itself, um, but it, it certainly knows how to do that. Um, and um in in a very sophisticated way, with uh high high uh, performance meaning that um most babies are are nearly perfect and uh, so yeah there, there was the point that to to show that uh all the all the systems that are able to rejuvenate um are already there they're just only applied to the birth of a of a Uh, offspring and not to our own um, cells but uh, certainly uh, there must be at least to a a certain level there is not there must be now we've shown that there is or there are uh, systems that can uh, get rid of damage uh, and replace the damage with with new and young both inside of a cell and um, and uh, inside of an organ
0: so to some extent is the longevity project to sort of fool the genes into thinking that they're um, they're producing offspring when they're just rejuvenating ourselves
1: Uh, no i no no, i don't think so i think the the longevity program really is about a um, something so imagine that you started a, a car company and uh and you make the decision um you know i want to have this car on the road for a hundred thousand miles um and you know in the beginning you could uh, just build a, a nice car uh, but then eventually you will find out very rapidly that that's not enough right That that you're gonna have a body shop that you gotta have a mechanic that you gotta have uh, somebody that replaces the tires, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so um, that is what the longevity program is: is a, is a behaving based on the force of natural selection. To you know, each year, starting with bacteria uh, three billion years ago, and moving on, you progressively uh, develop a new. Uh, you learn. And then you develop something um, let's say a DNA repair enzyme, a uh, uh, protein repair, a uh, immune system, et cetera, et cetera, um, so that um, that the body uh, is uh, stays almost perfect until the, you know, say age fifty, at which point uh, you um, at least historically you will have had uh, grandchildren. And um, you know, then it's okay if you get out of the way. Mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, that you're, so that really, what you, I mean, you talk about you know, the five pillars, and the fifth pillar is the study of complex systems. So it's like you know, we think of a car as an inanimate object, but a car within an intelligent ecosystem of maintenance is is something else. And so, saying that the 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 human organism or any organism is itself a complex system um that that is that is you know designed to to accomplish particular goals
1: yeah so the the, the human body is equipped with its own body shop its own mechanic its own repair and replacement system the, the tire shop right so um all of it uh, uh, is there not for everything uh for example, there is some repair and replacement in bones, but uh not that much uh so some things are just built once and they they uh stay there but so they are for the car right some the body of the car probably get never gets replaced, maybe it get fixed but not necessarily replaced so um I think that uh we're similar in that sense uh um some things that are important to be replaced for example the, the liver uh keeps uh generating new cells um but the brain has some new generations of cells, but not that much and um and at least of neurons i mean as generation of other cell types but not neurons um or, or very little and um yeah so that's um, that's uh, probably what's uh, what's occurring,
0: right? And so you know, the way classical evolution is believed to work is that survival of the of the next generations then uh, cements whatever mutation or changes or developments have occurred. So we're, we're if we're saying that we're set, we're decoupling longevity from the evolutionary um, you know manifest, then we we have to. Um, to just you know i don't not work work against the body but sort of work orthogonally to to what the body is trying to is is naturally trying to do within a species right
1: well, yeah we're not decoupling um we are uh, you know the, the the two things are are very much uh combined and connected um and um and uh, at a certain point i mean what we've been trying to do is to uh is to utilize what's always been around uh to change that program to extend that program right and and so for example we've known that if you look at somebody who's anorexic uh they're not going to be able to have children and why is that well that makes perfect sense right in evolutionary terms because if you're anorexic and you have very little food, uh, or you know, let's say 30,000 years ago you had very little food, you'd be in an anorexic state. It makes no sense for the system uh, to allow you to reproduce right? because you're gonna die and the child is gonna die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a futile investment. Uh, so then, what did evolution do? Well, um, it, it selected for a reduction um in the aging process during that starvation uh, period and um and also an so an investment in protective systems and probably in regenerative systems or at least uh, in standby regeneration so the body is ready to regenerate um and um so now if you exploit uh, programs like that or 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 processes like like that now you can potentially um, say, you know, we only reproduce a few times in our lives. Uh, why do we need to be in a reproduction mode all the time? We don't. I mean, we, we, we did. We used to because uh, obviously uh, you will want to take any opportunity possible, you know, 30,000 years ago to reproduce. Now that's not the case, right? So then the argument could be, well, let's, let's keep the body in a starvation response mode without necessarily starving it we, we we could do this in, in in different ways and um and that you know we've now shown in many different organisms that these can now uh put the body in a standby mode so extend the longevity program and then of course if you need to reproduce, you can come out of it and and go back into it um yeah so that that that's the idea now you know it's it's not as Simple as, as I'm making it sound, but um, you know we're already doing it, and we already uh, have already shown the the effects, and, and it's just a matter of now getting better and better at it, always keeping in mind the, the being in tune with evolution.
0: Hmm. I, I, that's really fascinating to think about. Um, you know, basically put like it sounds like like evolution has prepared us to just walk around ready for sex all the time, and that implies a, cer- a certain amount of energy expenditure that we no longer need to make and that we can intelligently funnel into these protective systems and uh, and elongated systems.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, now, of course, uh, um, <laughs> ready for sex uh, is, uh, is a tricky one because obviously people wouldn't want to stay in a non ready for sex mode but i so more than ready for sex i would say uh, ready for reproduction uh, mm-hmm. mode you know so it's a better uh, way to look at it because it looks like they can be uncoupled you know that you can be ready for sex but not necessarily uh, ready for reproduction
0: uh uh-huh. so um i know you you, know, you studied with uh, with roy walford who became famous for um, for spending what is it was a year and a half or two years in uh, two in, years. Bio, to, in biosphere two, and there you you wrote something in the book that that um, has puzzled me for a while, which is that you know being on a calorically restricted diet is one of the the only proven ways to extend life in in just about any organism, and yet <clears throat> it may have contributed to walford 's premature death can you explain the paradox of the people in biosphere both you know doing something to extend their lives but also like harming their health you know being sort of miserable and coming out looking not so good
1: yes i, I think with with any powerful intervention um you can have something very positive or something very negative coming out of it right and um and so Calorie restriction obviously was triggering or or beginning to trigger something very powerful. And so if you look at um, at their blood, uh, when Walford and and the others were in Biosphere 2, I mean, there was drastic changes in reduction in cholesterol, triglyceride, uh, fasting glucose, uh, blood pressure. So if a cardiologist looked at them, and, and, and even an oncologist, they would say, or certainly an endocrinologist they would say these people are never going to get diabetes uh, they're never going to have heart uh, at least uh, um, heart disease uh, uh, of, of um, based on, on you know accumulation of, of uh, cholesterol etc cetera atheromas at and uh, and they're probably going to have a, a very reduced uh, um, incidence of cancer and in uh, this way eventually was confirmed by the studies of, of somebody else that was in uh, in Walford's lab before me, his name is Richard Weindruck at the University of Wisconsin with the monkeys, right? So that's exactly what they shown. shown. Uh, but yet, um, when they restricted the monkeys for, for 25 years, um, they had a you know, great reduction in cancer, cardiovascular disease, no diabetes, but then they died just a little bit later than the, the monkeys on the regular diet, right? And the regular diet was not that good of a diet. It was a close to a Western diet. Um, so that's it, you know, that tells you that, um, this is, uh, the, being pushed to the limit is okay for a while, but if you do it for, for a long time, you're going to get the good and the bad and they cancel each other out. And, you know, it's not surprising that this idea that you could just, uh, beat the, the longevity, the existing longevity program by just starving, uh, by just you know, continuously uh, restricting somebody in a severe way, uh, I think there was a, a, a wishful thinking and maybe a naive idea, right? Um, even mice, if you look at mice, the original data uh, seemed to be very positive, but then when people looked at all kinds of different genetic backgrounds, some genetic background did worse on color restriction, right? So, um, yeah, so then what Walford and others missed at the time where the molecular biology, the genetics of aging which we were lucky enough to uh, um to uh, you know be able to take advantage of advantage of of course it took a lot of a lot of work because we're the ones that that they came up with the genes that um, i mean me and, and and a group of others around the united states uh and mostly um yeah so we're the ones that discovered these these gene, genes like torus scanase igf1 pka etc that are so central to the aging process. Uh, but that was really necessary to um, to understand how to do the good of calorie restriction without the bad that may have very well contributed to Walford's uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, although we don't know. I mean, that's speculation.
0: Right. But, uh, you know, when you talk about being in tune with evolution and sort of, you know, in tune with how the human organism evolved, you know, I, I would think that um, it would be common to have Periods of starvation or near starvation, and you know, we and periods of uh, of gluttony—that that there, you know, something about the ability to withstand lots of different, um, you know, caloric experiences might be might be something that would sort of you know bolster the the system, provide positive stressor, the same way that like lifting weights. Both breaks down and strengthens muscles is is that partly the uh, the impetus behind the idea of of uh, intermittent fasting
1: um, yes um, i mean I, there's no doubt that people um, starved all the time, meaning that it was very frequent for 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 humans and all kinds of organisms i mean microorganisms spend most of their time starving. But even humans, it's pretty clear if you look at um, history that, you know, it was almost impossible to avoid uh, doing uh, relatively long periods of of fasting and starvation uh, frequently. Uh, That said, um, we really need to uh, move away, I think, from uh, using uh, what people used to do to think that what people used to do is necessarily good, right? So... And that's what the, the, why in the book I talk about five pillars um, because it has to be a match. It has to be a common denominator between what people used to do and what the science and the epidemiological data and the clinical work, etc., now shows to be good for you, right? So, you know, like, for example, you hear about the paleo diet. Well, the argument that just because people did it, it's good for you is a bad argument. Uh, now, at the same time, it's also a bad idea to say, "I have tested a drug or an intervention. Uh, nobody's ever done that before, uh, but I'm sure it's going to work in the long run, right?" Um, so, I think what, what you really need is to have both. And so, let's say, the, let's say that you're talking about a high animal protein, high animal fat diet, one version of the paleo diet. Well. Um, you could say, okay, fine, people used to do that. There was a period where where we may have done that, or we probably did that. Um, Well, let's look at the science and the clinical data and the epidemiological studies and the centenarian studies, and and none of them support it, right, none of them. Uh, If you look at epidemiological data, people that do that live shorter. If you look at animal data, animals put on that diet live shorter. Uh, if you look at the centenarians none of the record longevity groups had that right so it's the same thing with with fasting um and fasting periods um you have to match uh, match with the science and luckily for fasting the science is very positive you know many of the old uh, people with record longevity did fasting um and um and the, the mouse data is very positive it shows lifespan extension protection And um, epidemiologically, there is uh, some negative data uh, for certain type of fasting. For example, there is negative data for daily, you know, say, 16-hour fasting. There is negative data uh, both for uh, gallstone formation, and there is negative data for people that skip breakfast over and over and over. Now the epidemiological studies are suggesting, and, you know, if you're fasting for 16 hours, you're probably going to skip breakfast. And uh, and now a number of studies are are showing that um, people that do that because they don't don't have breakfast uh, live shorter and uh, are more prone to uh, cardiovascular disease and cancer. Uh, so, you know, what is the reason for it? We don't know. Is it about skipping breakfast or is it something else that people to skip breakfast to? We don't know. But certainly, it's a bad start. Right? So, uh, this is to address the 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 fact that people want simple answers and you just can't do that uh, whether it's calorie restriction or fasting or the paleo diet you know people will love to say we used to do that therefore that's what I'm gonna do that that's what I'm gonna do and I'm gonna live longer It doesn't work like that and as we've shown a few years ago um, there is also phases of life you know so you're gonna have a diet you probably need to have a certain diet up to age 20 another diet at least from 20 to 65 and probably there's a couple of diets there, and another diet from 65 to 80, 90, and another diet from 90 to 110, if you ever make it there. Um, and that's m- more complex than people want to do or want to understand, but that's what's emerging from, from all these five, all these pillars, and that's what I talk about in the book. And it's not that hard to understand it. I mean, you know, if, if, supposedly you can go for 40 years on a diet. That's okay, you know, to learn it, uh, have to learn uh, how to do it twice, you know.
0: Hmm. so so I, I love the, the the talk of the the pillars, this sort of you know, preponderance of evidence as opposed to look like you know people who are trying to make money with something will very often point to a single study that you know short term uh, of questionable funding uh, manipulates the the data to get the result they want, and you're looking at a very, very broad picture so can you talk about? What do the five pillars tell us about what's the what's the ideal human diet um you know at, at whatever level of of generality or specificity you think would be helpful
1: yeah so i I always thought um it, it was uh, strange that you know in a courtroom if you uh, if somebody's accused of of murder uh, you will have all these different pieces of evidence you know uh that go into deciding whether somebody's guilty or not you know and they go from dna evidence to uh, um what is the motive uh were you there at the time can we prove that you were there on and on and on you know and then when we get to nutrition or or, or many different um, problems in medicine oftentimes we just go with uh one piece of evidence right and, uh, and you know, that in the courtroom, that would be laughable, you know, that they would never even consider something like that. So I always thought it was strange how science cannot even do um, what we do in the courtroom. And, uh, yeah, so the, the five pillars really is trying to address it from, from that beyond a reasonable doubt, you know. Is it possible uh, to uh, say, well, you know, I can never be sure, but... This is about as solid as it gets, and and we're gonna go this way. We're gonna convict this person, and uh, or convict this diet, you know. And so uh, the pillars, um, uh, you know, the first one is epidemiological studies. Um, so in the book, I talk a pesceta- about a pescatarian diet, and um, and if you look at the epidemiological studies, so the studies of you know thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of people. Um, you have very little negative data for a pescetarian diet, meaning that over and over and over, the studies are supporting a vegan vegetable plus fish diet as being very very healthy for you. Uh, particularly, you know, if you um, avoid, let say, high mercury fish and and, um, and maybe some of the vegetables that uh, that may be associated with inflammation and, and, and certain problems. And um, um, so, and and the epidemiological studies are supporting a low protein but sufficient protein diet. So that's also very important, right? Um, And and our study then showed that after age 65, you probably have to increase the level of proteins because the body is not able to, uh, and you probably have to also increase the the variety of foods that you eat uh, because the body may not be as good as it used to be, in, uh, in processing and incorporating um, processing food and and, and uh, generating amino acids and and, um, and basic components that are now that are then going to be part of the biosynthetic process. Um, so that's that's pillar one. Pillar two is um, clinical studies. So um, what happens if you uh, the gold standard is you do a randomized clinical study. Um, so there's not as much data as there is epidemi- epidemiological data in, in randomized clinical studies. But certainly, if you look, for example, at the study done in Spain, and uh, you know, in the in the book, I talk about 60, 30, 10, 60% carbohydrates, uh, mostly from from legumes and uh, vegetables, 30% fats, mostly from olive oil, nuts, and uh, fatty fish, and 10% protein. Now, If you look at randomized, large randomized studies on, on, uh, in, in, done in Spain uh, on people that were at risk for cardiovascular disease, and if they were randomized uh, to a, uh, a group that had high, high olive oil, high nut content in the diet, uh, or both compared to a low-fat uh, group, meaning a group that uh, was exposed to a low-fat diet, um, they did so much better if they were on the on the high level nut diet that, that they had to stop the study because it was unethical for the controls uh yeah so then yeah, there's also lots of support in one way or another uh from from the clinical uh studies uh, for this uh, pescatarian diet and um and also you know for the fasting mimicking diet you know we uh, i talk about periodic fasting mimicking diet and uh we have now we've done our own uh, clinical studies and others are now carrying out uh, studies on different forms of fast. But certainly, for the for the periodic uh, fasting mimicking diet, uh, we've shown very clear uh, effects of uh, five day uh, fasting periods uh, in uh, um, in randomized clinical studies. Um, then you have basic research. Um, that's the third pillar. Um, well, you know wh- what happens if you feed uh, mice a uh, um, a low protein diet, for example, they do much better. Uh, what if you feed mice a high saturated fat diet? They die early. Um, so, so lots of the, the things that uh, certainly the selection of the pescetarian diet is very much uh, low protein pescatarian diet is very much supported by the by the mouse studies. Uh, so the basic research uh, um, is uh, is also supportive, and uh, and then you have centenarian studies. Right? So what about people that have record longevity? And um, whether it's Okinawa, Calabria, Italy, Sardinia, Italy, uh, Icaria in uh, uh, Greece uh, or certain regions of Costa Rica or Loma Linda, California, um, all these areas pretty much have uh, a, uh, a vegan plus fish and plus some meat diet, but uh, not very much. You know, um, The meat is, is a once-a-week uh, type of diet. Um, event uh, for most of these populations and uh, so that's that's pillar number four it's very important right because you don't want to come up with something that again scientifically looks great and then 30 years on the road it starts killing people Uh, it's very possible it wouldn't be the first time uh, we 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 come up with something that uh, looks great at the beginning and then it it, it turns out to be a nightmare Um, and the fifth pillar complex systems as we were discussing earlier what about cars and planes and um, you know because we build them we understand them very well so it's also easy to see how they did deteriorate so for example I talk about um, you know should you run um, 150 minutes a a week uh, 300 minutes a week or 500 minutes a week well you know if you look at the data um, the uh, epidemiological data looks like 150 is about as good as 300 minutes. And then you start thinking of a car and say, well, you know, if you drive a car all the time, the tires are and everything else is going to wear out, right? So, you know, yeah. assuming that the body is better than a car and can fix itself, but eventually it's going to get worse and worse at fixing itself. So is it, good to, is it a good idea to run 500 minutes a week when 150 from the epidemiological data is already suggesting a near maximization of the effects probably not yeah stick with 150 if you really like it go to 300 minutes and um, and that's that that's good you know that's a good level so yeah that's how so, uh, so, the five pillars can help uh, shape these uh, recommendations
0: yeah so i had a question about about that and the data you know just around the complexity of it so if, if like I was thinking, so, you know, and I'm, I'm biased because I'm a runner, and so I'm closer to, you know, 300, 400, 500 minutes a week than 150, and I feel like because I eat a plant-based diet that's very low inflammatory, I recover faster, I can run more, um, so is the data on 150 minutes p- for people who are eating like me or people who are eating a sort of the standard Western diet, or, or is it, you know, comprehensive?
1: It's comprehensive this is for everybody right so they went out and looked at everybody that runs and um, and uh, anybody that doesn't run and then they just compare them and the runners or not runners but the people that did exercise for 150 minutes I think there was a a 37% reduction in overall mortality and you know and also this has been done for different diseases and um, so that's great. Then, if you went to uh, 300 minutes, I think it went to from 37 to 43 percent. I have the numbers in the book, uh, so it wasn't a big a big difference. And um, and then, of course, as you go more than 300 minutes, which would mean you know an hour a day for five days a week, um, you get into you know a, a poorly understood territory. There's a lot of less people that do that, and um, and uh, it doesn't mean that somebody couldn't do it do very well uh, with it. It just means that it's not a good recommendation for everybody. Um, then uh, you know people uh, may be able to do extremely well uh, doing that. You know, and um, also because you know some people understand. For example, if you hurt yourself, you got to stop, uh, and uh, you get a uh, you have to. Uh, be back in, 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 uh, in an optimal, uh, or in a ready to run again condition, right? And, and some people may, um, may do that and some people may not. So I think the, the recommendation to the masses should be, uh, stick with 150 to 300 minutes. And then if somebody, uh, is, a is an athlete and they really, um, you know, w- want to do more than that, then, uh, you know, there is some risk involved, but, uh, but that's something that they have to, uh, consider it like in your, in your case, you know, right.
0: and and to be clear, you're, you're also recommending that people walk an hour a day that, that doesn't count towards that 150 or 300 minutes, right?
1: Yeah. I recommend they walk at least an hour a day, um, uh, and, and at least a couple hours, uh, on, on the weekend. Um, so, uh, and, and then, you know, that people do everything, you know, in the traditional way. So go up the stairs you know, and, uh, Everything. Try to do it yourself, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, so I think that this certainly uh, makes the adds maybe a couple of hours a day, ideally, to the exercise uh, in in uh, you know, moving, walking, and, and re- going up the stairs, etc. Gotcha.
0: So I want I want to cover the uh, you know your innovation of the FMD, the fasting mimicking diet and i was i was struggling a little bit to understand this um so you have sort of four elements that define a fasting state for the body and so your goal was to to achieve all those four elements while still giving people calories was was that the, was that the uh the quest
1: yes uh we wanted to not Interfere with the with the you know we wanted to be in tune with evolution so not interfere with the starvation program, um, but at the same time allow people to eat and at the same time prevent uh, the intake of uh, of ingredients that um, are otherwise negative. Um, yeah, so those are those are and, and of course we are also very. Uh, very uh, focused on safety. Um, can this be done by almost anybody, uh, or not almost anybody? By 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 the majority of people anywhere. And that was uh, all the considerations that went into the fasting making diet.
0: So, what was what was that quest like? Did you did you sort of hit upon the the outlines of the correct? Formula right away? Were there a lot of dead ends?
1: Um, we uh, spent decades on on connecting nutrients with uh, genes. So, you know, we knew right away that some of the fundamental things that we had to do, but uh, it took years to to uh, keep developing and keep testing it first in mice and then in people uh to eventually uh, have something that um not only it gets the effects and, and we learn the hard way, it's also about compliance. You could have, you know, everything perfect in your head in your lab and even in a in a clinic if you check somebody in. But then what happens when you get out there? So we also had to have some minor compromises on that I push myself and my colleagues may say, well, you know, if you're trying to shut off this gene, why don't you have less of that? And uh, and my answer is because um, I, I want people to be able to do it. And uh, if people cannot do it, then it's just the whole thing is pointless. And, uh, you know, eventually we might have like the perfect version uh, for the hardcore ones, the, the ones that say, you know, I can do it however you give it to me uh but uh, but i think for now the um the technology i think was also there to uh to make sure that people uh can do it relatively easily and and it's working i think it's we're seeing you know tens of thousands of people doing it now and uh and uh, so i think uh, we're on the we're on the way to uh to making this a um, certain option for doctors but also uh, for people that uh, don't need a doctor yet, um, to to handle um, at least some of the initial problems in uh, in age-related dysfunction.
0: Hmm. So, so what what are the benefits of doing um, the FMD protocol? And uh, I guess you you recommend that people who who need to lose weight should do it once a month, five days once a month, and then people who are at a healthy weight once every six months. Um, what 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 sell it what what does somebody get from 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 doing this thing
1: yeah yeah well first of all i don 't want to sell it because um well. you know it's uh you know uh, it, it um i think I, I as i explained in the book um it's there um you know for people to do to um to do uh, good uh to, to improve with and um and and um I know what you meant by selling it but I mean I don't want people to misinterpret and right. and, and I don't make a penny out of this um and um but the company there's a company out there and I just thought that the um there was important to to have a product just because uh, to make it safe and to make it uh, to match the uh, uh the clinical results and, and to also please the doctors that um really would never have embraced it if there wasn't something that was uh, thoroughly tested uh, clinically and, and, and after the clinical study uh, but anyways um the um the, the fasting making diet um uh, what it does and what it was designed to do is to um push the body into breaking down um many different uh, damaged components um and uh, and then uh, turn on the repair and replacement systems, including stem cells, but also including intracellular uh, repair modes that um, that then are um, executed during the refeeding, right? So the, the fasting making diet really sets the body up, uh, but it is the refeeding that uh, regenerates and rebuilds and fixes problems. So, I mean, it is the combination, essentially, right? But, of course... People are good at doing refeeding, and people are just uh, very bad at doing fasting, and, and so that's where the, the fasting making diet uh, um, operates. And um, and um, and again, because of the way it's designed, it, it triggers all these different genetic changes uh, that allow these uh, these uh, repair, uh, replacement, and uh, regenerative uh, processes. And um, but uh, the compliance in the clinical trial that we did uh, here at USC, um, we showed that three cycles of the fasting minging diet uh, reduced cholesterol, blood pressure, fasting glucose, uh, triglyceride, uh, uh, IGF-1, which is a marker potential risk factor for cancer, a C-reactive protein, uh, protein, a marker for systemic inflammation and a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And uh, as far as people that should use it, actually the once a month is for someone who's obese and it has at least two markers uh or risk factors that are elevated. So somebody who's obese has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, that's once a month. Um, somebody who's overweight, uh, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, that might be once every two months. And then it just goes down from there. Uh, all the way to, let's say, uh, you know, 35-year-old uh, uh, athlete that has a pescatarian diet um, and um, and that has everything in, uh, perfect. Uh, all the blood uh, tests are perfect. So that person may want want to consider it uh, uh, twice a year, and only if, they're, um, if they are of normal weight.
0: Mm-hmm. And how important is the the feeding between? Um you know instances of of the diet do you see big improvements even if people go back to their their horrible Western diets between FMD sessions
1: yeah so let me qualify this because uh, then uh, the people uh, tend to attack me Um, so of course in the in the book I talk about the pescetarian super healthy diet in between and that's the best right and then eventually you may get to the point where you only need to do this twice a year because you have a pescetarian diet. The reality is that people don't have a pescetarian diet, and, uh, and we see the FMD working the best on those that have the worst diet. <laughs> um, so so um, if somebody came in with fasting glucose in the clinical trial, the people that had fasting glucose of 75 or 80, which is excellent, um, we saw no difference. I mean, it didn't come down uh, anymore. Differently from chronic calorie restriction. You know, if you look at the Walford studies, people that had 80 fasting glucose or had a low blood pressure, they came down more, right? And that's probably the the, the distinction between the periodic fasting making diet, or at least one of them and, and chronic calorie restriction. Chronic calorie restriction is pushing your body to go more and more and more extreme, whether it's good or bad for you. The fasting-mimicking diet seems to be doing what probably has always been there to do, at least what fasting has been there to do, but in a safe way, which is um, get rid of problems and then return to normal with a new set of, of uh, um, cells or, or certainly with, with some level of rejuvenation. So I, I use the analogy in the in the book of a, a wood-burning train, and I basically say, you know if you had a wood-burning train, um that an old wood burn the train and it doesn't have enough fuel to make it to the next station you uh, the engineer will go back and try to grab first the chairs and the walls that are damaged right uh, and start burning those for fuel now the the train becomes lighter and you have enough fuel to make it to the next station, and when you get to the next station, now you rebuild the chairs, you rebuild the walls that you've used in the uh, to to obtain fuel. So now you may have a, you know, 20% of the train is brand new uh, and you made it to the station, right? And that's exactly what the body does. Um, so so now um, you uh, are, if you start with uh, uh, your cells working properly, uh, you're not really fixing anything much um, and, um, and you don't see a difference. Uh, and that's, of course, very, uh, say, in the United States, maybe 10% of the people would be in that category. Considering that 72% of Americans are either overweight or obese, and uh, but yeah, if you start with a problem, uh, then the fasting making diet seems to uh, have a, um, a very powerful effects in uh, in fixing many of these problems, and uh, and we suspect that um, as we've seen in mice, uh, the reason for this is what we've seen in mice, which is uh, multi-system regeneration. For example, in mice, we we could destroy completely or or certainly destroy all the insulin-producing beta cells um, in the pancreas of of a mouse. And then um, we start the fasting-making diet, and we can show that within uh, five cycles or so, the uh, fasting-making diet, they're starting making normal levels of of, uh, insulin again. And this is a permanent effect, meaning that that we can stop the diet. And they still, now this be, uh, insulin-producing beta cells are now functional long-term, and the mouse now is, is back to normal. So you're, you're, so, so you're talking
0: about, in mice, the essentially the equivalent of reversing type 1 diabetes.
1: Yes, well, yeah, not the equivalent. Uh, yeah, we reverse type 1 diabetes in the mouse model. Um, and type 2, you know. So, uh, so it's very effective uh, in mice. You know, now we're going to do clinical trials, of course, uh, to see uh, whether some of this is conserved in in, in humans um but certainly the, the 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 idea of taking bad cells and replacing them with good cells is clearly there also in humans the question is how far can it go you know can it can it, it like we've seen for for people uh can it regenerate uh, um insulin producing beta cells and you know and neurons and and liver cells etcetera et cetera? and and if if so to what level? And so, of course, um, the clinical trial that we published suggests that some of that is going on for sure, uh, but um, but the pathology treatments, um, we we're have, we just starting to do, well, some of them we've been doing for years, but uh, uh, we're just starting to learn about uh, how effective they can be.
0: Gotcha. So, I want to, I've, I've taken up an hour of your time, um, so I want to be conscious of not Uh, overstepping, but I do want to ask one one more thing, because a lot of uh, the audience for this podcast are vegans or whole food plant-based eaters, so they will have been surprised so far to hear um, that fish and, you know, a fairly copious quantity of olive oil is recommended for uh, longevity. Now, you know, when I look at, say, the, the Predimed study from Spain, I interpret it fairly differently from, uh, from what I read in the book and from what you've discussed here, which I, I, you know, I don't see any of those diets as being equivalent to say Esselstyn's or Ornish that reverse heart disease. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm also real, real curious about the, uh, olive oil versus, you know, what I teach people, which is to, uh, that oils are a highly processed, artificial, calorically dense food. Um, but so for for the vegans who are listening who are not going to eat fish at all do you have thoughts or recommendations is is there enough evidence to say that pescatarian is clearly superior to full on vegan or are there other things they should do to uh to sort of you know to make up for the salmon deficiency or the sardine deficiency in their diets as you see it
1: Well i mean you know obviously you can be vegan and you can be very healthy uh, as a whole, vegans are not necessarily that uh, doing that well compared to um, compared to people that, uh, uh, that eat uh, otherwise, right? And and that's surprising, right? Because that you will expect the vegans to do much better. And so the suspicion is that um, that you go from one problem to the to another, right? So for example, um, you know, many vegans that I talk to, uh, I ask them, what did you eat in the last 24 hours? And, I mean, keep in mind that I'm vegan beside two meals a week, right? So you're talking to somebody very close to a vegan. Uh, uh, but, you know, if I ask the question, uh, in most, uh, most of the times they'll be protein deficient, right? It doesn't mean all vegans are protein deficient, but lots of them are. And, uh, um, you know, because they don't realize that you need half a kilogram, uh, you need a pound of, of garbanzo beans to have enough proteins, even if you only weigh 150 pounds and i have that and you know many times a week but most of the vegans i talk to don't um so um right so you're you're so talking about I sort think... of vegan
0: versus a whole food plant based right so vegans can eat you know just pasta and junk and it's simple right uh, as opposed to someone who is who is getting all of their calories from from whole plant foods
1: um Yeah. I mean, of course, now I'm talking about vegan. Yeah, they can eat whatever they want as long as it's plant based. Right. Um, And now, you know, if you get into the um, the uh, more careful categories, um, you know, we don't know because there's just not enough people that do that to have, you know, epidemiological data. Um, but for sure, you're starting to get into a, I mean, if you're talking about the masses, you're starting to get into a difficult, uh, um, you know, um, difficult, uh, uh, situation, meaning that if you eliminate fish, uh, and then you start eliminating, let's say also, uh, the pasta and, and, and the bread and the rice or, or certainly have low levels. Then you're going to have a very little uh, portion of the population being able to carry it out now, and also you're entering uh, an area that is poorly understood. You know, so what happens? Um, so we know that um, to a high carbohydrate diet over and over and over is uh, the, the most beneficial one, right? I mean, the ones that comes up on top. Uh, so if you eliminate starches. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes extremely difficult to have an, an, enough calories to get to the end of the day, right? And now you're even saying, let's eliminate oils. Then becomes impossible to get to the end of the day, right? And, uh, I mean, few people, but like one in a hundred can do that. Uh, most people are just going to struggle, you know, and we see this all the time, right? So this is why esselstein and and Ornish, um, it, really the data doesn't support uh, the, um, the um, uh, low nuts and low uh olive oil uh, now there could be some olive oils that uh, contribute to inflammation but overall uh the data is very is very positive and um and i just i mean unless somebody um, is in a, in a, a very advanced uh, state of of uh, uh, heart uh, problems I just don't see um you know I, I mean the overwhelming majority of the, of the results are Positive in favor of of uh, the good fats. Um, now, you know, I, I love to look at the ones that are, are negative, but uh, um, if you look at the Essentia data, I mean, it's very few uh, patients that have actually uh, been published on. I don't think it's been ever even randomized versus uh, the Astroc data, which is thousands of patients uh, uh, randomized. Um, so, you know, uh, I I I, um, I think we have to go with the pillars and with the data and uh and I mean if fastine and Ornish want to come up with data that shows why that's not um that's not true um you know um that absolutely but I- even if you look at the recent data, on um, mice that had a higher even higher fat um content um they live longer So it's high fat low protein they live longer. Than uh, the mice put on a, on a um, low-fat diet, the typical low-fat diet. So again, multiple pillars are suggesting that the good fats are in, in, in their case they're even arguing the bad fats. Uh, but I, would, you know, I, I don't go in that direction because um, you know the um, the bad fats seem to kill mice early. So I always thought that that's probably not a good idea. Uh, but the, the healthy fats, salmon, nuts, and and, uh, and olive oil. Uh, are pretty consistently uh, come up uh, on the right side of things. And and if you look at the Mediterranean diet, meta-analysis are showing um, reduction of diseases. Not huge effects, but uh, certainly um, better than than the other diets. right? So uh, now, how would they perform if somebody had a a plant-based diet, low-fat, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, I don't know. Nobody knows, but certainly... It is a very um, it, it is a very tricky territory because nobody knows, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the uh, the kind of study that you'd like to see would be, say, a, a randomized trial with some Esselstyn and Ornish uh, versus a higher fat uh, olive oil diet. Well, over, over no, over no the, for the yeah
1: yeah for the regular population. No, I, I don't even want to see that because nobody can do that diet, right? uh, very few people can do that diet. I mean, the reality is when you spend time, like I do with thousands and thousands of people, uh, you know, one in a hundred can do it. So, I mean, I'm all for it. Uh, if you have, you know, an advanced cardiovascular disease state, like the ones that the assistant has been describing, it can work for you. Sure. You know, do it. I mean, obviously if you can do it, do it. But when you're talking to the, to the, to the masses, uh, that's, you know, that's an impossible diet to have, you know. I would never do it, and most people that I know would never do it. And um, and so you have to look at, you have to do a little compromise. Well, first of all, um, you know, yeah, it'd be nice to show it at least in a randomized study for the people that are in an advanced stage, you know. So let's take, you know, 500, 600 patients, randomize them, and then give them, you know, the esotene and Ornish diet, and then randomize it to the same with good fats, right? That's never been done. Let's see that the, the trial. I mean, everybody that has ever looked at data will say they're gonna do as well. Uh, but, you know, let's see, maybe they do worse, uh, but we need to see it. And, um, but that I think will still have to be uh, confined to people that have a real problem and they may adopt this very severe um, SST diet uh, because of where they are, when you're talking about the general population, um, I think it's um, uh, it's it's one of those directions that um, are not going to really help because it's so extreme that uh, the great majority of, of people won't do it. So you, you have to come if over somebody, if
0: you ever in uh, North Carolina, come over to my house and I, I'll try to change your mind with the uh, with a, with a meal.
1: No, no, I know, but I mean, you know, don't forget that I was in Walford's lab, right? So <laughs> Walford, uh Walford was on a crazy, crazy diet, and he could do it, and there's a couple of thousand people around the United States that could do it, you know, but they're called cronies. Um, But, uh, you know, in the long run, they ended up doing worse than they they, they thought, you know, and same thing for the monkey. So I'm just saying something that looks very uh, positive in the short run uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be very positive in the long run. Especially when you get into these uh, uh, phases of life, like uh, you know, over sixty-five, where you start having immunosenescence, the immune system starts changing, et cetera, et cetera. And um, um, there is also inflammatory problems, like a lot of vegetables, uh, whole all, uh, grains, and and, and vegetables can have uh, strong pro-inflammatory effects. And, um, so now when you push somebody particularly on a diet that is very heavy on something they never had before, you can start seeing all kinds of problems that, um, that, you know, and and it is this person specific, right? Some people may do very well, but then some people may do very poorly on having whole grains, for example. Right. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's where the complexity starts. And I think that, uh, that we need to keep that in mind and and, and i 'm not saying it cannot work i 'm just saying it's uh it 's trickier than, than than we think you know
0: mm-hmm. gotcha well um I really appreciate your your insights and this book and so for for my vegan friends who are um, <laughs> getting getting a little um excited um remember that we're we 're talking about a, a like 95% vegan diet, maybe fish twice a week and not, you know, not huge portions either as.
1: as uh, and it's not necessary, you know, it's not necessary. I mean, they can stay vegan. I'm just saying that they have to match that, those two fish meals with, uh, with, uh, you know, vegan nutrition. So it's, it's not necessary to, to introduce animals. There could be ethical reasons for not doing it. And that's perfectly fine. I'm just saying, be careful at, uh, you know, uh, not uh, paying attention and being vegan because it can easily get into the malnourishment area.
0: Right. And what what I'm I'm saying is just in in terms of your influence on the world, um, you know, in in a world where a lot of the science and scientists are embracing ketogenic, very high-protein diets, um, you know, you're not coming out of the plant-based or vegan camp and you are basically advocating a largely... Whole food plant based diet with a couple of um, of exceptions for fish and olive oil. Um, that you know, if the world adopts the way you eat, we'll all be a lot better off.
1: Yeah, I think so. And now, why is olive oil not uh, part of the vegan diet?
0: Uh, well, because I mean, I'm, I'm that, that part. I didn't well, because uh, you know, it's I mean, just in terms of um, you know, in in uh, in tune with evolution, it's extremely. Processed food that we probably have only had for, you know, since we invented the, the press. And-
1: oh, you mean in that sense, not uh, Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And this is why I think if you did not have the Italians, the Greeks, uh, the Lomalinda people, and um, and the clinical uh, data and all of that showing uh, lots of nuts and lots of olive oil um, are, are actually associated with longer lifespan, uh, I would also eliminate it, but. Um, you know because people love it because it gives you calories uh that you need uh, because it does push you a little bit in the ketogenic mode um and because of this data um you have to go with uh with uh the facts and and say look it's probably a good way to go you know because you gotta eat something and that's uh, that's the other thing you know you can't uh um it it's difficult to uh um, to have too many rules, you know, for for most people,
0: right? Although I would I would say that you know the the, the blue zone countries can can get away with more olive oil because they are so much more active. Right? They're they're you know, walking and fishing and gardening and um, you know I think there has to be a match to your 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 movement and and the amount and, and the and the richness of your diet, no.
1: You know, if most data would suggest that higher fat, uh, uh, and this is not just the good fat, even the bad fat. You know, this is why the Atkins diet is so popular. So most data would suggest that you're going to lose weight and not gain weight by having a high oil and not diet. There's very little data going against this. So, so the caloric uh, input um, is there, obviously, but it does not, uh, particularly the good fats. I mean, there's almost uh, very little data suggesting that. I mean, the, the, the weight gain in, in most countries, uh, like southern Italy, is definitely not due to olive oil. It is due to the, the high starch diet. Uh, and, you know, and, of course, sweets and, 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 and other things that they eat. You know, So the, there is uh, very, very little data suggesting that, um, especially the good fats but even the bad fats are, are contributing. In fact, almost every paper, I mean, I'm very much against the Atkins diet, but almost every paper uh, is showing weight loss. I mean, with a high bad fat, high protein diet, is showing weight loss. And I always tell people, look, you know, this is an illusion because eventually it's going to hurt you. But uh, just from the point of view of uh, weight gain or loss, if you have a high fat uh, diet, in most of the studies, will, will show weight loss.
0: Gotcha. One, one last question. Some, someone, uh, what, what, I told them I was interviewing you, and they, they wanted to know, is there a difference in the results of the the fasting mimicking diet and the longevity diet for, for men versus women and you know, premenopausal or postmenopausal menopausal women?
1: Well, no difference in men and women. We saw uh, similar results in men and women. Um pretty soon now we're trying to get the data for, you know, over thirty thousand people. Uh I mean I don't know how many we're gonna get, but certainly thirty thousand pe- over thirty thousand people have done it. We try to hopefully get a couple thousand uh feedbacks. And um uh, premenopausal and postmenopausal we uh, did not have that many women that were postmenopausal. Um, you know, at some point uh I think that that's something that we're gonna look into, but um yeah, yeah we haven't done that yet.
0: Gotcha. Um, and finally, for for people who want to try the fasting mimicking diet through the, the 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 product that you've scientifically validated, and who want to follow your work, where should they go?
1: Yeah, they they go to um, uh, there's a website called ProLon FMD, P R O L O N F M D fasting mimicking diet dot com I think, and um, and then they uh, they take it from there and there's a uh, questionnaire and, and some other qualification questions and then they, uh, um, they can either, uh, they're either assigned to somebody that needs a doctor or somebody that can do it uh, just by talking to a registered dietitian that I think the company provides. So.
0: Gotcha. And, is, and uh, are you active like on a website or blog or social media?
1: Yes, I have a, um, um, well, first of all, I have a foundation called called the Create Cures Foundation and all the proceeds of my book uh, go to the Create Cures Foundation and um, and it's createcures.org. And then uh, I have a Facebook uh, page where we um, post articles of of studies that we think are are well done and, and interesting to people. Uh, lots of vegan uh, studies, and um, and that's a Prof. Professor Walter Longo uh, Facebook page. So Prof. Walter Longo uh, Facebook page, and um, and if they like the page, then uh, they just get the the articles as we as we uh, identify them. And now I think soon enough we are also going to start uh, um, having some PhDs. Uh, I'm selecting some PhDs. They start writing articles uh, because lots of times the journalists. Uh, May not completely get the the point of papers and and uh, uh, so I I thought it was, it, for some things I really care about like proteins and and you know these uh, like say good vegetables and pro-inflammatory vegetables we're gonna have a, t- a number of topics that I really love that that um, that I think would be good to have a PhD that spends uh, some time uh, figuring out what's real and what's not. That's
0: that's a that's a great service to uh, to eliminate the middleman of the. The science journalists, most of whom I find, don't really understand what they're reading.
1: Yeah, and you know, the problem is most of them are not. Uh, they don't come from the medical or um, or science background, and it's very hard for a journalist like that. It's impossible to put it in the context, right? To to say, okay, this this group has discovered this, but let's look at fifty papers, right? What did they show? You know, what is the consistent? What what are the pillars showing? And I, that's what I thought. That you know, I don't want to blame him because you know, lots of them are doing a great job. But it's just impossible uh, to really explain it in a way that uh, they can be useful to a reader. Say, well, what shall I do now? You know, if if you, let's say you know, when there's a paper that came out recently showing uh, tomatoes are bad for you, and and in the same paper it had tomatoes are bad for you and then pizza is good for you. It's you know, <laughs> epidemiological data, right? So I was laughing because like, you know, somebody reading this, uh, they're going to say, what? what is this? What, the, what, the, uh, what does it mean, you know? And um, so, well, you know, it, uh, because they were talking about pro-inflammatory and the effect of pro-inflammatory vegetables and meats, etc., on colon cancer. And, um, and the paper was probably very interesting, but it, it really needed somebody to say, okay, let's look at the reality. For most people, tomatoes are fine. Uh, for a few people, tomatoes might be bad. Same thing for for you know gluten, and uh, so yeah. So that, th- those are some of the examples where I think that uh, I just uh, you know I feel really bad because I'm thinking if I was just an r- average reader, I would be very confused. Now I see all this data attacking vegetables.
0: You know? Right, and that's just you know people who are acting out of goodwill. We're not even talking about all the, the industry marketing that's 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 trying deliberately trying to muddy the water for us.
1: You know these were were a top uh, journal top uh, research group and probably, you know, uh, the data, um, and now, of course, we're also very interested in, in trying to break it apart because it had red meat and tomatoes in the same group, right? So, of course, I started thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, which one is contributing the Maybe the tomatoes are contributing to a 0.3% increase in, in inflammation, and the meat is contributing to 80%, and then they average <laughs> out to to 37 I think it was um so yeah so you know it's very complex uh, uh and, and, and yeah probably there was nothing wrong with that study but there was probably uh, something wrong with the way uh then you know it gets in the news it gets presented uh and then it gets used to argue oh you see vegetables are bad for you, you know?
0: right well so i'll i'll include a links to to the facebook page and to the Prolon FMD and to createcures.org in the show notes for today's episode. And again, I really want to thank you. The work you're doing is is phenomenal. Um, I'm going to be bragging when you win the Nobel Prize that uh, I got to <laughs> an interview. And just you know, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. Very, very nice interview.
0: Well, I hope you found that really valuable, really useful. And it seems like this would be a good episode to share with people in your life who are not plant-based, who might be... Uh, ketogenic or low carb, I think Walter Longo has a ton of credibility and he might be able to get through to people that the rest of us can't. So if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the mission of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you go to plantyourself.com and you look on the right sidebar for the Patreon link, you can click through there and support the mission of the show financially as well. May was a milestone month. It's the first time I've ever received over $500. And to celebrate... I was in I am in New York right now, and I'm doing this uh, outro, not on my uh, home computer, but on a Zoom H6 a portable recorder that I will be able to do a lot more uh, in the field podcasting with and hopefully with higher quality as well. And I, that was only possible, at least psychologically, because of the support I got uh, this month from Patreon. And I would love to get that up even higher. I'd love to get to 2500 a month. That's kind of the dream that would allow me to really give it the time it deserves and not uh, subsidize it from all the other work that I do and have been doing. All right. So for more information about Well Start Health's Big Change Program, which is coming up, we're starting on May 21st. We'd like to get everyone enrolled by May 14th so we can onboard you um, leisurely, without having to kind of rush everything at the last minute, go to wellstarthealth.com slash program. Um, if you want to get healthy and fit, um, this is the program that Josh Lajani and I developed, and it's been refined by the folks at WellStart, by Olivia Kelly and Boyana Yankovic, And it's, it's changed so many lives. Certainly, it's changed Josh's and my life, being privileged to be in a position where we get to help people hold their hands, walk them through what has been in the past very painful failures where people were motivated to change and maybe they even knew what to do and how to do it, but they didn't know how to sustain it and they didn't have the mindset and the skills in the community to to make it a regular part of their lives. If you go to big dot com, which is the website that we used to use to uh, to sell and to enroll, you can at least see the testimonials and see Josh's story and a little bit of my story. Um, we I don't even I don't even know what to say because it's it's kind of awkward for me to be selling this. I believe in it so much and I just want people to take advantage of it, to be healthy, to spread the word. I just want this this message of of plant based wellness of the possibility of us taking our health back in our own hands. Um, you know, I was just in Washington, D.C. at a conference and there's a lot of enlightened people there around health care, around benefits, around the system, around the economics of it. And yet it was so sad to see people so in denial just of their their own eating habits and exercise habits and mindset habits that that could have any impact on, on their wellness. And it's a message that really needs to get out there. And this is uh, me and Josh, um, the way we're we're spreading it. So if you want to jump on board, again, wellstarthealth.com/program. If you want to check out the show notes for today's episode with Dr. Walter Longo, you can look at it at plantyourself.com slash 269. And if you're new to the show, you can catch up on 268 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com where you can also get my weekly-ish, more-ish than weekly these days, newsletter. In garden news, everything I'm going to report is secondhand since I've been traveling uh, DC and then New York City. But uh, my wife sent me some pictures. They've uh, my wife and my son put some uh, I couldn't even see what it was. It was on the phone, but uh, some plants are in the ground. And when I get home, I'll let you know what they what they were, what they are and how they're doing in running news. I have some really exciting running news, which is that I got to see the same sort of physical therapist slash trainer slash body whisperer who helped Josh Lajani overcome his back problems. And I've seen him twice so far in New York City. And it's amazing the work that he did on me to kind of retilt my pelvis so that I'm walking better, running better without pain, without uh, hip flexor, hip flexor, uh, soreness and tightness. I have one more session with him tomorrow. And all I can say is, like, don't live with pain if you haven't tried, you know, everything like this this guy I, I don't want to share his name publicly because he's not uh, interested in that kind of publicity if you're really interested if you really are you know if you're near New York and you really need help with gait with posture with pain um you know hit me up by via email h j at plantyourself dot com and um I can put you in touch uh, but it's just amazing to feel. Like my body is stacked one bone on top of the other the way it's supposed to. And all sorts of things are just feeling easier. So I couldn't be happier. So thanks to uh, our, our mystery PT guy. And of course, thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the dance of peace, as this podcast's theme music. Visit Willreidenauer.com, That's dot com uh, for more of his music. And last... Thanks to all you Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Let's see if I can do this now from afar. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mauro, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Likonofsky, David Badek, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Katori Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian, Roland Stu Deltman, like Sarah Dirkus, Rungett, Circus Kelly, Cameron, Wien Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire, Adams, Tom Franz X, Gannette David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizzov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friedner. Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, rhymes with cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Alad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the panda vegan Craig the Adam Sharp, Karen Karen Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, Kelly Michia, D N Norton, Bonnie Lynch, a plant happy organs, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Michelle Rudless, Juan Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Sharon Hirschman, Kate Rose, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Heather Gardisa, Susan Walk, Connie Heinlein, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avivale. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Land, Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Health T.A., Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divott, Joshua Sommermeyer, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.